grateful to uh, ha- have a chance just to hang out with you this morning. It's been a few weeks for me since I've been on this campus, and uh, we are grateful to have the opportunity to hang out and see some new faces. Uh, so thanks for venturing out. Uh, we also know there's still uh, some people hanging out online, and we can't wait to see you. Uh, until then, may the Lord bless you and keep you and make his face shine upon you. Uh, and then those that are joining us in Edgewood, hey, we're grateful to have you. And uh, today we're going to dive in uh, to Hosea chapter 12. Now, if you are just kind of coming back with us, and maybe you've been disconnected a little bit, or maybe you're a first-time guest, uh, over the last three months, uh, or a little bit more, we have been working through the book of Hosea, an Old Testament book, uh, a minor prophet, a guy that was telling the northern tribes uh, of Israel after they had split uh, couple hundred years earlier, that they are on a path of destruction. And he is warning them to return to the Lord. The problem is, is that they will not hear the prophet's words and they will not heed the instructions of multiple people that God had sent on his behalf. And so the Lord just is reminding them that uh, judgment and vengeance is due to them and that it will not pass them by. And so that's where we are in the book of Hosea. And we're going to uh, dive in in just a few moments and just begin kind of unpacking Hosea chapter 12. Uh, As we do that, uh, we're going to be talking about a guy who, uh, in a sense, wrestled with the Lord. And I pray that if there would be one thing that I could share with you today, and that would be simply this, that you and I would wrestle with the Lord, that we would... uh, in a sense, um, wrap our arms around him, cling ourselves to the cross of Christ, and not let go. Uh, in a world that is shakable, might we fix our eyes on Hebrews, a uh, kingdom that cannot be shaken. And friends, it's so easy in this day and time for us to be distracted um, in, in many ways to um, be dispersed and, and in some ways even not honoring our king. And so I pray that we would do that uh, as we are reminded through the text today. And so I'll just real quick, I'm going to give you a heads up. Uh, I'm going to say some things today that might step on your toes. Listen, you need it. Um, so do I. Uh, I'm going to also, I'm going to be very passionate today as well. So you just go, go ahead and hang on because uh, the Lord has a word uh, for us. And uh, church, it's time for us to come alive and to be what God wants us to be. And so let's pray together, and then let's just ask the Spirit to lead wherever the Spirit will lead. Father in heaven, we trust you. You are sovereign. You are holy. You are righteous. And uh, Father, you have a word for your people. Um, Lord, in spite of your messenger, Lord, I pray that you would remove me from the equation. Lord, I have no business being on this stage apart from you. Um, Lord, it is simply by your grace and your kindness and your goodness and your gifts to me that would enable me to do anything. And so, Lord, I just come before you humbly uh, with a contrite and even a broken heart. Lord, just declaring to you that the, the words that would come from me today, I pray, would be words from you. And most of all, just your word, your text. I pray that it would speak for itself. I pray you'd give me wisdom to articulate it in a way that makes sense to the hearer. And that we would leave here a, a, a broken, a changed, a challenged people that have wrestled with you. Uh, Lord, I pray we would do it well. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Amen. So today, uh, Hosea is uh, walking through with this group of people in the north, and uh, he is, in a sense, piggybacking on his counterpart, Amos, uh, to the north, and he is just reminding the people, hey, listen, there is a word from the Lord. And then what he does, though, is he, he does something interesting in a few moments, and he reminds them of some of their old 
uh, forefathers. But before he does that, he just goes, hey, listen, we're chasing after some things that are vanity. Uh, in Hosea chapter 12, verse 1, he says, Ephraim, which is the northern uh, kingdom of Israel, uh, he goes, you are feeding on the wind. The word feeding there in uh, the Hebrew literally means that you are shepherding the wind. It's very similar to the words of Solomon in Ecclesiastes 1.14, that, that in a sense, we can chase after vanity, that, that in, the, in the end, you won't catch it. And so I don't know about you, but have you ever eaten the wind? Okay, I'm not talking about eating the dirt. You know, I'm talking about eating the wind. Like, isn't that impossible to do? Uh, the reality is, is that it won't quench you. It will not fill you. It will not appease your appetite. But nonetheless, Israel continues to shepherd and pursue and feed on the wind. And we see that it's an east wind, and they do it all day long, and they multiply falsehood and violence. As Hosea shares these words with the people of Israel, he goes, you are chasing a hot east wind. Now, in order for you to get your mind around it, it'd be like you and I chasing after a hot summer day over and over and over again with no water bottle in sight. You just work and you work and you work and you look at the fruit of your labor and there's nothing to rejoice about. You're sweaty, you're hot, you see despair and heartache and then there is nothing to quench your thirst. There is not a water bottle, there's no Gatorade, there's no Powerade, there's nothing. And mama ain't coming. You're on your own out in your foolishness. Anybody done that here lately? Hot summer, that's what it is. He goes, you are striving after feeding on a hot east wind. It's just a reminder that they are pursuing after vanity. Things that won't satisfy, things that won't fill them. It's a scorching, vain pursuit. And in in their pursuit, it just brings about falsehood and violence. It just shows their despair, their corruption, the tragedy that's happening around them. In the latter part of verse 1, he goes, And y'all even make a covenant with Assyria, and oil is carried to Egypt. He goes, In your vanity, you have showed your duplicity, your double-mindedness, but you've also showed your self-reliance, your need to be in control. And you've trusted in politics, in the economy, and instead of the fortified person of your God, you trusted in Assyria and in Egypt. And he goes, and now you're going to be carried off. Now, I don't know about you, but the people of Israel had this promise from the God of heaven and earth, the very one who spoke everything into existence, Colossians 1, the things we see and don't see, the things we know and don't know, all of it from God. This people, Israel, has him at their advantage, and yet they choose to trust in other things. Friends, can you ever do that? And that's what they would do. And he goes, and listen, it will not end well for you. He goes, you've chased after the wind, a hot wind at that, and you've made a covenant with others, and you'll be carried away, which is fulfilled, by the way. In verse 2, he says, and so the Lord has an indictment. He goes, he has a charge. You're in the Lord's court, and because you were before him, he is going to tell you what's happening. He goes, you uh, will face the indictment against Judah, and, and I will punish Jacob according to his ways. He will repay him according to his deeds. He goes, you have violated my covenant promises and my oaths, and you will eat of the wind. Your thirst won't be quenched, you won't be satisfied, and you will be left alone like a hot summer day with nothing in sight. What you've created is merely a mirage in front of you, and it will not fulfill. And he goes, and that's what you got. 
And he goes, in, in what, the way of that indictment, he goes, you need to be reminded of your forefathers. And he reminds them of this guy named Jacob, and which I'm going to share a little bit about with you in just a second. Jacob uh, is the is an Old Testament forefather uh, who was the son of a guy named Isaac. If you remember Isaac, Isaac was the son of a guy named Abraham. And so Abraham had Isaac. Isaac would then have a couple of sons. If you remember, uh, one of those sons was named Jacob, which God loved, and the other one was a son called Esau, in which the Scripture says the Lord hated. Now, what that meant was is that he loved Jacob and, in a sense, chose him first, even though he was the younger brother. So everybody, real quick, you've got Jacob, and then you've got his brother. One, two, three. His name was Esau. One, two, three. Esau. Esau. Okay, let's do that again because Edgewood wasn't participating. Okay, so here we go. One, two, three, Esau. So you got Jacob and Esau. Now, real quickly, Esau, as we read in Genesis, was uh, a boy that was born in his birth first, and uh, he was a hairy young man. And not only was he hairy, he became a fierce hunter. And so he was a hairy hunter, and he decided that he was going to be a daddy's boy. Matter of fact, Isaac loved him much. Meanwhile, Jacob is known as a hill grabber. The hill grabber is the one who contends for his brother. And he literally, even as Esau is being pulled from the womb, it seems in the scripture that just as the Lord promised, the one who contends, Jacob grabs on and latches on to his brother Esau's hill. Now, Jacob is a little different. He uh, is not a hairy guy. Uh, he is not a hunter. He's a mama's boy. And uh, he stays close to home, and mama loves him. And Rebecca loves him, and Isaac seems to love Esau. The problem was is that from the very onset of Jacob's life, he was, he was a contentious person, meaning that he was always contending for someone else. Matter of fact, in his contention, he was always doing things that were crafty or cunning or a little bit deceptive. Uh, we were reading through Ephesians 4 about a year ago, and uh, in that it says that he don't be tossed to and fro by every wind of doctrine, by cunning and crafty schemes. And that cunning and crafty schemes is talking about people that are dice-playing cheaters. Anybody ever played cards with a cheater? Uh, if you didn't raise your hand, you are the cheater, and we don't like you either. Uh, we know who you are. Uh, so you ever played cards with one of those? That's who he is. Jacob is a dice-playing cheater. He's going to slip an ace card in. He's going to always hold one back. He is that. From the very onset, he is that. So he strives after his brother's birthright and his heel. Later on uh, in life, what you're going to see is that him and his brother are going to have a conversation. Matter of fact, what happened to Esau was out hunting one day. He was tired. He was parched. He was hungry. He came in from after a laborious day of hunting, and he was starved. And Jacob goes, hey, well, listen, I've made some of mama's famous red bean soup. You want some? And he's like, oh, I'd love some. I'd love some soup. And he goes, okay, great. Uh, sell me your birthright, and I'll give you something to eat. And Esau, in his foolishness, goes, okay, great probably not meaning everything that he was going to say. He goes, okay, great. You give me something to eat, I'll give you my birthright. And from that moment on, you saw this contentiousness that continued to flare up in the relationship. The problem is, is many, many decades would go by. And Isaac, the father of Jacob and Esau, was on his deathbed. At this point in time in his life, he had become uh, very... Uh, in a sense, blind, couldn't see well. Uh, but what he was doing on his deathbed was going to give the birthright. And it seemed like Esau had forgotten the conversation he had with Jacob. 
And so Esau tells the fierce hunter, the hairy one, Esau, to go out. And he goes, hey, I want you to go out and I want you to kill me some venison. Bring it to me. We'll eat together. And then I'm going to bless you with your birthright. Meanwhile, it seemed that just sitting outside the tent, mama heard it. So Rebecca goes to her favorite little son, Jacob, and goes, hey, listen, your dad is, is, is close to his death, and he's already commissioned Esau to go out and hunt, and he's going to give him a birthright. So I've got a plan. Hey, let's go back out to the, to the, to the barn nearby, and we're going to slaughter, uh, we're going to slaughter a, a goat. And what we're going to do is we're going to take that goat skin, and we're going to put it on you, and then we're going to cook up some of my, my, my fried venison goat, and we're going to f- feed it to dad, and he won't know the difference. Dad, you know what I'm talking about, right? Mama puts something on a plate. We just eat it. And so that's what happens. And so daddy's eating the fried goat, and he's enjoying it. Uh, meanwhile, his eyesight has eluded him, but his son comes in, and he's going to deliver the birthright. And he goes, Esau, come near to me. And Jacob, in his most Esau-like voice, steps up. And he goes, is it you? And he goes, it is I. It's me indeed. And he goes, well, come here. And he, he feels of him. And he feels hairy. He smells like a hunter, someone that's been near livestock and animals. But his voice is a little different. He goes, well, is it really you? Is it really my son? And he assures him that he is, and then he gives him the birthright. Meanwhile, Esau has been out hunting. He comes in, and when he comes in, guess what? He has been deceived once again. Jacob and Rebekah have stolen the birthright The birthright should have gone to the older son, has gone to the heel grabber, Jacob, the one who deceived. Coincidentally, uh, you might think that brother might be a little frustrated by what just transpired. And so Esau is now mad at Jacob, and Jacob decides that he's going to flee to a land called Aram. And he's going to go to uh, his mom's brother's house. And so if your mom has a brother, that's an uncle. So he's going to Uncle Laban's house. Everybody say Uncle Laban. So he's going to Uncle Laban's house in the land of Aram, and he goes there. And upon getting there, um, before he gets there, he actually is going to set up some time in the wilderness, and he's going to stay a night. And it's there that he's in the middle of the wilderness. He's going to lay his head down, and he doesn't have a pillow to lay on. And so he takes a rock, and he puts it down, and he sleeps on the rock. And it's there that he has a vision from the Lord, and in this dream, he sees a ladder from heaven. And up and down the letter is angels, ministering spirits that are meeting his needs throughout the night. Lo and behold, he wakes up, and what does he do? He makes that as an altar to the Lord. He takes the very stone that he had laid his head on, and he places it there as an altar to the Lord. And he says, this will be the place that's called God with us. We met with God. It's Bethel. And so Bethel is going to be the place. Meanwhile, he continues journeying to the land of Aram. He goes to Aram, and he goes... Um, up to his uncle's house. Meanwhile, he sees this beautiful girl named Rachel. He grabs her, pulls her in. He goes, man, this is love at first sight. Gives her a big old kiss and says, hey, you just met your Prince Charming. (laughs) She goes and she tells her uncle that Jacob is here. He sought refuge from their family. He goes and meanwhile, he says, hey, I'm here to work on the farm. He's seeking refuge from his brother Esau who's after him. His mama, Rebecca, sent her son there to find safe haven. Meanwhile, they work out a deal. He goes, well, how much am I going to have to pay you, uh, Jacob, to work on my farm? He goes, hey, you just pay me this good-looking gal right here, and I'll work for you for seven years. 
For seven years he works. The scriptures tell us in Genesis that it was merely like a few short days because he was so enthralled with her. Meanwhile, the day had come when finally he had fulfilled his seven years of working. Jacob goes to Uncle Laban and said, Uncle Laban, it's time to pay up. I'm ready to have my marriage consummated with your daughter. So they call all the friends. They're going to kill the fatty calf. They're going to have a big party. They're going to consummate it. They have the ceremony. They enjoy it all. And then, lo and behold, in the darkness of night, he goes, Hey, Jacob, I want to send you into the tent to consummate your marriage. Go, have a good time. Enjoy my daughter. And meanwhile, in the dark, guess what? Jacob, old Jacob, seven years of payment. He can't see in the dark, but he can feel. He can smell, he can, he can touch, and he can hear. And he consummates the marriage, enjoys a night of celebrating a new relationship, wakes up the next morning, rolls over to grab his cup of coffee and to give his new wife a kiss on the cheek. And he goes, ah! Because <laughs> it ain't beautiful, Rachel. It's the sister that ain't a looker. Her name's Leah. What would you do if you were deceived? You'd be angry, wouldn't you? So he stomps out, Uncle Laban, come here. <laughs> Uncle Laban comes and he goes, what, are you, what have you done to me? And he goes, you know it ain't a part of our custom to give our youngest daughter away first. I gave you the oldest one. He goes, well, what am I going to have to do to get Rachel? <laughs> he goes, another seven years. Let me ask you a question. You ever been deceived? You ever deceived someone? You know, oftentimes it takes seeing sin in others to be able to see the sin in ourselves. You ever had a kid? And I look at my kids and I go, oh my gosh, they got the worst of me, didn't they? They are the homo assault, the same stuff as daddy. They are me. Not just in their good looks. But in their poor behavior, in their words, in, in their uh, entertainment, sometimes I go, oh, man, you wanted to reach across the table, right? And then I just am reminded, man, that's me. I'm so grateful that God has been gracious with me. Meanwhile, Jacob works seven more years before he finally gets uh, the, the daughter that he wanted. And so now he's got two wives. He's got Jake, or Jacob's got Leah and Rachel. He'll work six more years for Laban, so 20 years total before in the middle of the night, in a deceptive way, he decides he's going to load up his, his entourage and he's going to head out. As he heads out, he also hears that Esau is nearby. And as he is going to meet Esau, he sends his entire family ahead of him because that's what a man of courage does. Remember, he's not a hunter or a fierce, fierce warrior. But then the Lord calls him, Genesis 32, he says, I want you to meet me in a specific place. And he said, I want you to go where I first talked to you. You remember where that was? Put a stone on the ground, Bethel, Bethel, go to Bethel. And it was there that what you see happens in, next, in verse 4. It says in verse 4 that he strove with the angel. The angel of the Lord is what we get the account of. And he prevailed and he wept and he sought his favor. He met with God at Bethel and there God spoke with us. Now what's interesting is Hosea says something here. He goes, Jacob sought the Lord. He contended with him. He wrestled with him. He wept, which is not an account that we get in Genesis chapter 32. But he says, and God spoke 
to Jacob then for us, with us. So what he is reminding him of, he goes, remember what God did at Bethel? Remember what God did there with Jacob? Jacob, a a crafty, cunning, dice-playing, card-cheating fool, met with God there. And he wrestled with him throughout the night. And at some point in that, uh, in that fight, in that contention with the Lord, eventually God took and he put his finger and he took his hip, Jacob's hip, and he put it out of socket, out of place. And I don't know about you, but I would, I would well, when you, you would begin to weep. And his spirit was broken and his hip is out of socket. And from that day forward, this, this guy is going to be marked. He prevails with the Lord. But even as he's marked for the Lord and he begins to prevail, he, he weeps. And the question is, is, why is he weeping? He's weeping for multiple reasons. One, his hip is out of socket. His life will be forever changed. The second reason, though, is because God finally got to this man. This deceitful, scheming trickster, God finally got to him. And when he finally... Put his hip out of socket. What Jacob does next as he prevails, he wraps on the account in Genesis 32, and he will not let go. I mean, he holds on in every way he knows how, and he says, God, I'm not letting you go. The angel of the Lord is not leaving until you bless me. And the Lord takes him, and he marks him there, and he weeps not only in physical agony, but also in a spiritual depravity knowing that God has changed him and marked him and is there at Bethel, listen to me, lean in, that God says, and you will be my people and I'll name you Israel. Hosea goes, God named us Israel there at Bethel. Can you ever take a memorial that God had meant and change it and do something with it that you shouldn't? Look what happens next. Verse 5, the Lord, the God of hosts, the Lord is his memorial name. He goes, the very place that he broke Jacob, the very place that he changed him, that he marked him, that he forever changed him, the very place that Israel got its name is the very place that Jeroboam, the son of Solomon, decided that he was going to make it one of the places of temple worship. He did it in the north in Bethel and Dan in the south. And he goes, I'm going to make golden calves. Instead of you going back to Jerusalem and worshiping God, I want you to worship these calves. Friends, can you ever take something that God intends to be good and use it for evil? Hey, you remember the days of Jesus and he walks in and he goes, what are you doing in my father's house? Matthew, the gospel account, he goes, you have taken a place of prayer and you've made it into a den of robbers. Can we ever take and make something a mockery that God intended to be his good, a memorial set apart from his name? Yeah? Friends, here's what's interesting. People in America are worried way more about kids running in the church building than they are about their own lives. Listen, do you know what the mockery is? The mockery is not that you don't wear a suit and tie to church. The mockery is not that somebody wore a hat. Lord forbid they they wore a hat. That is not a mockery to God. A mockery to God is when you, the temple of the Holy Spirit, don't abide as the temple. The mockery is when you defame him with your lips. The mockery is when you type things on a computer that don't honor him in your own selfishness. And can I say, I might add, my type of ignorance. 
The mockery is, is that God says, I have called you, I've consecrated you, I've set you apart. I have taken a heart of stone and I've replayed it with a, replaced it with a heart of flesh. I have changed you. I've called you out of darkness into the wonderful light of Christ. I have called you my people, a holy people. You are a royal priesthood, a chosen race. Now go and be the difference. Friends, what's the bigger mockery? That kids run in a church building? Or that we, the people of God, are not the light and the darkness? That's the bigger mockery. See, we take a memorial, the changed heart, and if we're not careful, we'll make it a mockery. So how do we keep from doing that? Well, Hosea gives them the answer. He goes, if you don't want to make, if you don't want to make Bethel a mockery, then he goes, plead with God. So here it is, verse 6, he goes, Plead, by the help of your God, return. Hold fast to love and justice. Wait continually for your God. With the help of God, you could realize that you are always this way. Guys, we were always like Jacob. You might not have had a twin that you grabbed a hold of the heel, but listen, from the very moment you were born, our hearts were foolish and darkness. From the very point that we came into this life, our hearts were deceitful, cunning, and crafting. They have always, our heart has always looked after our own self. We've been selfish, conniving, deceitful, in despair, chasing after vanity and a hot east wind. But then, Romans 5 eight, God being rich in mercy, he loved us. He sent his son, the Christ, to die for us. Amen? Amen. That's what he does. And he goes to have a changed life. So then return to him, hold fast to him, cling to him. How do you do that? You abide with him. John 15, Jesus says it this way. I'm the vine, you're the branch. If a man remains in me and I in him, he'll bear much fruit. Apart from me, you can do what? Nothing. You can do nothing apart from God. That means that our salvation is from God. Our transformation is from God. Our keeping close to him is from God. Our changed lives, our hearts are from God. All of it is from God. And he goes to Israel, you should be like Jacob who was changed. Now, let me ask you a question. Do you think Jacob was perfect? Even after he wrestled with God, do you think he did everything right? No. One chapter over, he does some really foolish things. Isn't it amazing, though, that God can take foolish people and he can shame wise people? Isn't it amazing that he can take weak things and shame strong ones? Amen. That's what the gospel is. And he goes, Israel, that's what you need to remember. Remember what I, I am telling you that God had done with Jacob. But he goes, but you won't change, will you? Verse 7, he reminds them, but you guys are like merchants and whose hands are false balances, who he loves to oppress. He goes, you are tricksters too. You're conniving. He goes, people walk into your store and you go and you put grain up on the scale balance. And he goes, and you have already manipulated the scales. That instead of two pounds, it's really one and a half pounds, but you're going to sell it for two pounds. You ever walked into the grocery store and their scales aren't calibrated right? You ever paid more than you should have for something? He goes, that's who Israel is. They are conniving. They are false. Verse 8, he goes on, he goes, Ephraim has said, oh, but I am rich. I found myself, uh, found wealth for myself, and all my labors, they cannot find me in iniquity or sin. Of course you're rich. You cheat people. You despise others. You have risen to fame. And, and the interesting is, is you don't even see your moral depravity. Listen, do you know that oftentimes we don't see our moral depravity because of our rich and wealth? 
You don't believe it. Like you, you thought that coronavirus is kind of a big deal, but you didn't begin to see moral depravity and sinfulness until you got into an aisle at Walmart and you needed toilet paper. <laughs> and you see yourself staring down with this woman, and she's looking at you, and you're looking at her, and you reach out for it, and she reaches out for it, and she wins. And she tells you off. You're like, give me my toilet paper. She's like, I ain't giving you my toilet paper. She snaps in your face. And then you try to follow her out in the parking lot, and there's this heat exchange. Y'all remember that kind of stuff? I know it would never happen here. Listen, you and I often don't see our moral depravity until some of the things that we think our lives stand upon are removed. When the earth shakes, you need to be reminded there is something unshakable. And I'll tell you, one of the most disheartening things is the amount of, of sin and, and filth and shame that has transpired over the last four months. And it's saddening, and it can be a little bit shocking, but the reality is it just helps you to understand that our nation might be wealthy, but it's wealthy with the wrong thing. And what we're wealthy with are things that will not last. And what we're building a kingdom towards is a kingdom that will fall away. And so it's just a reminder to us of what we should be about. Verse 9 says, Hosea goes, The Lord is telling you that he is the Lord your God, the land from Egypt. And I will again make you dwell in tents, as in the days of the appointed feast. He goes, you think you're rich, but until you wrestle and contend with God and you're brought low, you won't realize how poor you really are. And so here's what the Lord tells you. He goes, hey, listen, you remember when I brought you out of Egypt, 400 years of slavery and bondage? You remember I sent a prophet on your behalf. His name was Moses. Moses went and he dealt with Pharaoh. Pharaoh let the people go. And you remember in that sojourning time, the years in the wilderness where you dwelt in tents? He goes, that's what you're going to return to. Now, ladies, listen to me real quickly. Y'all ever stayed a significant amount of time in tents? on a hot desert east wind blowing through. Like you, you've opened up every tent window you could possibly can, and you're like, oh, I, I just went out of here. Listen, ladies, how long is your marriage going to last if your husband keeps you there? <laughs> I mean, you, you want, you want a, a leather couch. You want something plush to lay in. You don't have it. You just want a kitchen. You're like, baby, I don't even need a kitchen. I just need like a little mini, mini fridge, and I just need something that has a little gas furnace, something. I just need something to cook on. Nothing there. I'm not talking about these mobile homes that you have that are all, you know, luxurious. I'm talking about a tent. Ladies, anybody signing up for that right now? He goes, Israel, that's what you're about to be. He goes, you're high and mighty. The Lord has blessed you. You thought you were the ones who made the blessings. I'm going to bring you low. I'm going to take you back to Egypt. I'm going to take you back to the wilderness. You think you're high and mighty. I'm going to show you who's mighty. Friends, you ever have to be brought low to see how good and gracious, how powerful God is? Yes. Friends, he goes, I'm going to bring Israel low. And he goes, and I tried to avoid it. Look at verse 12 and 13. He goes, I spoke to the prophets. It was I who multiplied visions. And to the prophets, to, to them I gave parables. Verse 11, if there would be any iniquity in Gilead, they shall surely come to nothing. In Gilgal they sacrifice bulls. Their altars are also like heaps of stone on furrows of the field. He goes, 
It was there that I have tried to guard you. Verse 13, skip down and we'll come back up. He goes, by a prophet, the Lord God brought Israel out of Egypt. And by a prophet, he was guarded. He goes, I gave you everything you need. You were intense. I took Moses up to Mount Sinai. I gave him law. I gave you the moral, civil, ceremonial, and spiritual code to live for me, to love me, serve me. He goes, I gave you judges. I gave you kings. I gave you everything that you needed. I then gave you prophets. And guess what? You've not listened to any of them. And so you'll be brought low. I have guarded you. I've tried to protect you. But you didn't want any of the things that I gave you. You've not kept my commands. And so you are going to be brought to nothing. Matter of fact, he says in verse 11, if there's iniquity in Gilead or in Gilgal, which are sitting on the east and the west banks of the Jordan River, he goes, I'll, I'm going to bring their altars low just as I will the pharaohs of your field. And what he's talking about is when they're plowing in Israel, uh, you would be plowing along and you're going to hit a few rocks in Israel. And what you're going to do is you're going to take them out and you're going to set them to the side so that you can plow a straight row. And as you stack up all the rocks, guess what? You're going to look over and you're going to have a little, a little altar built up with all the rocks that were in your, your row. And he goes, I'm going to bring down the temples and the other things low that even your furrows will be higher than them. He goes, what you have built, I am going to break down. He goes, you can declare it. Say it to yourself because the Lord has spoken. And then he says this in verse 12. He goes, Jacob fled to the land of Aram. You remember that? He goes to Uncle Laban. He goes, just as they, he went to Uncle Laban and he served for a wife there and a wife he guarded the sheep. He goes, in that, that role of humility to, to be a teachable moment, he goes, I'm going to teach Israel the same way. In verse 14, he says, Ephraim has been given a bitter provocation. So the Lord will give will leave his blood guilt on him and will repay him for his disgraceful deeds. He says, I have brought you low. I have warned you. I have given you prophets to guard you. I gave you law. I gave you everything you need. You did not listen. I will destroy you. And so you better hold on and you better pay attention because blood guilt is going to happen. And friends, you know what's incredible is that God doesn't deal with his people like that anymore. Do you know why? Because he finally sent a final propitiation for sin, a blood guilt that will forever appease sin in the world. His name was Jesus. And so what's incredible is, is that we don't have to be in a habitual pattern like Israel was. We don't have to do that. Now, if we want to learn by pain, then we'll, we can learn by pain. But if we would like, we can learn by the precepts of God's word. And can I just tell you real quickly, here's what the precepts of God's word remind you of. Three quick things. Real quickly, number one, everything you and I possess, have in our lives is from the help of God. Every good and perfect gift is from God above. Do you understand that? Amen? amen. That's a great time, Edgewood, to say amen. Okay, we'll, we'll practice it one more time. Every good and perfect gift from above is from God. Amen. Your life, your breath, your wealth, your health, your sickness, death, despair, wake-up calls, the alarms that sound in your life to call a return, all of it's from God. A good God who says there is something at the end more valuable than gold and silver more reputable than what you're building. There's a kingdom that cannot be shaken. Would you trust in the Lord? Would you seek after him? Would you know that he is the one who is steadfast and strong? When everything else is shakable, there is a kingdom, as Hebrews says, that will not be shaken. Friends, will you and I trust in that kingdom? And I'm not talking about in form. 
I'm not talking about with word. I'm not talking about with our lips. I'm not talking about with a raised hand and a hallelujah every Sunday. I'm talking about with your life, with a broken and a contrite heart that is wrestled with the Lord. Friends, when's the last time you wrestled with the Lord? When's the last time that in a service, instead of staring at somebody singing, that you just got down on your knees and you just begged for God's wisdom and help in your life? In the business decision that you're venturing into in one of the most dis, uh, difficult economic times that we're in, how much are you praying about that? How much are you contending about that? What are you wrestling with God about? Friends, everything we have comes from him. The ability to work comes from him. And so what do we do? We remain steadfast and we continue to patiently wait on our God. What does that even mean to steadfast and patiently endure? The word in the Greek is the word hupomone, which means patience, to, to not give up. You patiently endure. You keep pressing on. It's, Paul says, fight the good fight. Run the race with perseverance. He goes, keep pressing on. Friends, how easily in a Christian life we get a little bit of difficulty in our life and we just cave in, we give up. But Jesus says, hey, listen, don't do that. He goes, I'm the vine, you're the branch. If a man remains in me and I in him, he'll bear much fruit. Right? Apart from me, you can do what? Nothing. You can do nothing without me. So friends, why do we even try to do anything without the help of God? If everything comes from God that's good, why do we try to do anything good without God's help? So patiently endure, steadfastly run after him. And so this is where it's going to get a little tough. Lean in with me. If you are to be God's people, if you and I are to be people who have wrestled with God and have been changed, the question is, is do people see that in you? Because here's what I want you to understand. If there is one thing that is going to change in this crisis, if, there, if one thing is changing, it is the, the church of, 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 of America. Churchianity is out the door. You know what churchianity is? It's the people who say they love God, but they do nothing for him. I mean, there are many of us that we've not given a dime to the kingdom of God in the last handful of years, let alone in some of the most crucial months of, of America's challenges. Uh, there's a lot of us that we don't serve or give of our time, our abilities, or talents. We trust that somebody else will step up and do the job. I mean, there's a lot of us that we would claim that we love God, but we're not in his word. We claim to love God, but we don't live in community. Uh, a large majority of us, we think that church membership is something we do so that we can host a wedding at a facility. That's not what membership is. It's not about building rentals. It's not about future weddings. It's not about you having something that could be posted in your obituary. Matter of fact, if there's one thing that frustrates me more than in Wills Point or Edgewood, I'm just going to say it is people who have attended here and they continue to put their members of Stone Point Church. They're not. Why? Why is that a big deal to me? Because members of Christ's body do the work of the body. The fingers work. The elbows move. There is a part that we all play. And friends, I'll tell you that if our membership is small, so be it. But what we don't want to be is a den of robbers who claim to be doing the work of God, but we're thieving him. And so friends, I'll tell you that membership matters here. Membership matters not because we got together 10 years ago and said, hey, you know what, let's make it as difficult as possible so we can keep all the riffraff out. That's not what it is. What we did is we, we read through the New Testament and we began to discover that people of God read his word on a daily basis. That's what you saw as a mark of an apostle. Then what you also saw is you saw that they, they committed themselves to gathering with community. Now, we didn't call them community groups. We call them journey groups. But the reality is we just believe that life as a believer needs to be done in the context of community. 
So we said, hey, you know what? That should be a mark. We also saw that people served, like they served. I'm not talking about greeting somebody as they come in a door. I'm talking about genuinely served others. They gave their time, their treasure, their talents to bless people for the kingdom of God. That's what God's people do. Now, as I hear, as you hear these words and I share them, like, it, honestly, is that a new reality for anybody? That that's what God's people do? The reality is, is that too many people are playing churchianity. And it's time to change. Why? Because God is going to eventually judge evil and he'll settle all counts. Matthew 7 says there's going to be a day, it's going to be the saddest day in our Bible, there's going to be many people that stand before God and he says, depart from me for I never knew you. Because going to church doesn't make you a Christian. Any more than your car being in, in uh, the garage makes it a car. The reality is, is what makes you a Christian is that you've been marked, that your hip was out of place, that your heart that was hardened in darkness and deceitfulness has been changed by the blood of Christ, that blood guilt has been paid. Amen. And so you might ask yourself, well, what is it that you want? I want you to realize that there's a day in which the Lord is going to return and he's going to make all things right. Right now, we're a little confused because Matthew tells us in Matthew chapter 5 that the sun rises for the same on the evil farmer as it does on the good farmer. That rain falls on both sides of the fields. But there's going to be a day where vengeance rises only on those who need to be judged and goodness and prosperity and hope for eternal life only falls on those who are his sheep. And so until then, we ought to press on, friends. And listen, don't forget or mistake that God's judgment will come. And that you might figure, well, God's taking his time. You might forget why. And so let me just read it to you before we close. It just says this in 2 Peter 3, verse 8 through 10. Peter reminds us. He goes, hey, don't overlook this one fact. Peter goes, there's one thing you should remember. Hey, hold of, don't forget, beloved. That with the Lord, one day is a thousand years, and a thousand years is as one day. Anybody felt like 2020 hadn't ever ended? (laughs) Not ever going to end? Yeah. Matter of fact, what's crazy, three weeks from now, we're going to kick off a series, and we're going to call it Hindsight is 2020. I can't wait. It's going to be awesome. (laughs) If we knew today what we should have known then. He goes, but hey, don't forget that the Lord is not slow to fulfill his promises. Some count slowness. But he's patient towards you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. The day of the Lord is going to come like a thief, and the heavens will pass away with a roar, and the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved, and the earth and the works that are done on it will be exposed. He goes, one day, Philippians says this way, every knee will bow and every tongue will confess. One day, God is going to show perfectly with perfect justice what's going on and he goes you better decide for yourself what team you're on and i pray that we would be about the business of god amen church i would encourage you to continue to show up every single week if you want to be about god's business if we're into churchianity listen i love you i i I say this as kindfully and winsomely as carefully as i can But if you don't want to do the work of Christ, if you don't want to serve this body, give financially this body, if you if you if you don't want to get off the bench and be in the game, listen. Can I just say, would you remove yourself from the shepherding responsibility? Because I've got to give an account for sheep, and I can't give account to sheep that don't want to be shepherded. And so I'm asking. This could be one of the sweetest things our church has ever experienced, or it could be one of the most challenging. And I pray that even in this challenge, that it would be a sweet time. But I'm asking for, gang, get in the game. 
and be a part of God's business. And listen, not out of compulsion or guilt. Second Peter 5, I'm not trying to guilt you. I'm not trying to inspire you. I'm just trying to tell you it's time that we would build an altar for the Lord and our lives would be that altar. May we be a sacrifice that doesn't crawl off the altar. It's pretty challenging when we're living, right? So, Lord, would you help us? Let's pray together. And then, friends, we're going to sing. And, hey, uh, if you want to come and pray at the altar uh, on either campus, uh, hey, I'm okay with that. Uh, come on. If you want to go and make an amends with somebody that you uh, have hurt or has hurt you, hey, please do that as well. Friends, this is our time to respond in a song. Let's pray together, and may we be God's people. Heavenly Father, we love you. We thank you. Oh, Lord, our God, you are great and mighty. You are holy. You are pure. You are lovely. You are worthy of all praise and righteousness. And so, God, we pray that you would meet us here, that just um, as we would heed and understand and read the words of how you met Jacob at Bethel. Lord, I pray that we would know that we have this tremendous privilege through Jesus Christ that we can meet with you wherever we are. Like we don't have to be in a building. We don't have to be uh, with a priest. We don't have to have a pastor. Like, Lord, we can be anywhere on the planet. And God, because of your spirit, Lord, which enables us to know you and to even do right, Lord, we can offer prayers of praise. Lord, we can invite you to give us wisdom and discernment. Lord, we can ask you to mold us and shape us. And Lord, it doesn't matter if it's in our car or if it's in our living room. It doesn't matter if we're praying upside down. Like, you give us a distinct privilege that the people of Israel didn't even have. And we thank you. Lord, may we take advantage of it. And Lord, most of all, I pray that in this time of despair, of challenge, of frustration in the world, I pray that the people of God would raise up, that we would see that the problem is not about elephants or donkeys. It's not about red or blue. It's not about statues that have been or haven't been. It's that the people of God aren't being the people of God. And it's time. May we take the message and share it. May we go to the hills and the valleys. May we proclaim your goodness. Lord, help us. We need you. Oh, God, we need you. Amen.